go to Luke chapter 15 tonight. I would be remiss if I did not express appreciation to all of you for so many kindnesses that have been shown me this week. Many of you have had kind words to say. Many of you have cooked meals that I have enjoyed. Many of you have been at every service of this gospel meeting. In fact, if you are a guest of this congregation tonight, and you've been here more than one service, or if you are a member of this congregation and have been here every service, would you mind raising your hand? Elders, look around. I want... Isn't that encouraging to see the interest in the gospel that is being shown in this place? Every congregation has a personality, and the more you travel and speak at different places, you discover that. And this congregation has a very pleasant personality from this preacher's perspective. You have uh, you enjoy being with each other. Sometimes you go to a church and when the last amen is said, I mean, you better get out of the way because they're going to hit the doors and hit the parking lot. And like a covey of quail, they're gone just about that fast. But not here. I mean, if you get here early, enjoy talking to each other. And uh, I usually try to stay to everybody leaves when I'm in a meeting, but I have not been the last one to leave any night this week I stayed and stayed and you just stayed and stayed. I finally went, went to the hotel. I think that's wonderful. And my favorite part of this meeting has been being back with Mark and Marlene. Been able to eat lunch with Mark every day and just re, renew our friendship. And I have so much respect for Mark. And I know you do. He's been an encourager to me through the years and a good example. And I know that you're thankful he's here. Tonight's the last night. I came quickly from this side of the pulpit. I don't know about the other side of it. Reminds me of the couple who were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And their family put together a little get-together. A lot of friends came, church members, and they had a very fine day. It was toward the end of it. They had had a meal together. And they were sitting up at the head table. They had roasted them a little bit and given them some presents and the man wasn't much of a speech maker, but he felt like he really needed to say something before everybody left. So he tapped on his glass and it got quiet and that made him even more nervous. But he managed to get out some words of appreciation, thanked everybody for coming and for all the gifts and reliving so many good memories. And then he looked over at his wife who was sitting right next to the lectern and he said, Honey, I just want to say in front of everybody that I love you and through the years I found you to be tried and true. She didn't hear as well as she had before, and she said, huh? He said a little louder, Honey, I love you, and I found you to be tried and true. And she said, Huh, well I'm tired of you too. <laughs> when I point that black van toward Jacksonville and head out of here, it will not be because... I am tired of you. This has really been an enjoyable week. When we see the magnitude of man's sins, we can hardly imagine how a single one could be saved. When we see the magnitude of the love of God, we can hardly imagine how a single human could be lost. After the war, the war, a reporter was interviewing Winston Churchill. If you're familiar with World War II history, you may remember that Churchill 
came out about two years before the rest of the world discovered what a villain Adolf Hitler was, and he spoke loudly and constantly about the danger that Germany posed to the world, and that was not popular to say when he said it. But eventually the world caught up to him and saw that he was right. And the reporter said, what gave you the courage to speak out and risk political ruin early on in speaking against Hitler? What was there in your past that gave you the strength of character to do that? And Churchill thought about it for a minute, and he said, well, I think it is when I repeated, had to repeat a grade in elementary school. And the reporter said incredulously, you failed a grade? And Churchill said indignantly, as he could, I have never failed at anything in my life. I was given a second opportunity to get it right. You know, most of us, let me rephrase that, all of us need second opportunities to get it right. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that made God have a dilemma. When Adam, when Eve sinned, Adam sinned, all their descendants eventually have sinned. God's justice demanded that man be condemned. Justice says sin deserves punishment. But on the other hand, God's love wanted to reach out and embrace us. God wanted us to go home with Him and live in heaven forever. So the justice of God was, as it were, pitted against the love of God. And so the wisdom of God stepped in with a solution and said, why don't we substitute Jesus for man and let Him die on the cross to pay the price for man's sins and then man can be allowed into heaven. And that was the plan that God came up with that's talked about in Romans 3, 23-26 where it says that God is both just and the justifier of man, of those who believe in Jesus. Sometimes we are reminded personally of what Isaiah, of how Isaiah felt when he was brought in the presence of God. He saw the throne of God and the train that filled it, the angels surrounding it, saying constantly, chanting, Holy, 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 in the ears of God all the time. And he had the veil taken back just for a moment in Isaiah 6. And his immediate response was, I am undone. I am a man I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among people of unclean lips. And when Peter saw the power of God manifested in Jesus Christ Luke 5:8 he said depart from me for I am a sinful man O Lord. So we can all relate to what it feels like what it is like to be a sinner. There are children here who haven't yet reached that age, but all those who've reached an age of accountability understand what it's like to be the prodigal son talked about in Luke chapter 15. Let's relive briefly this great story that Jesus told. This young man went to his father, demanded that he give him his inheritance. That would have been an offense to a Jewish father at that time. 
He was, he was saying what would have been the equivalent of, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could get my money, but since you're not, can I have it anyway? And so his father liquidated his assets, some of them, or emptied his bank accounts. And it wasn't long until this younger son went famously and foolishly to the far country with his pants pockets filled with his dad's hard-earned money. And it wasn't long before he passed the last shekel across the table for booze or something else in riotous living and he turned his pants pockets inside out when he was hungry there was nothing that he might use to buy a meal and there was a great famine in the land and nobody had anything extra and so he began to look for a job and the only job that he could find was one working for a pig farmer now my granddaddy had pigs and I'd go down and help him feed them sometimes when I visited with him and I didn't like to stay down there too long because those pigs stink. <laughs> those pigs were not any fun to be around. You didn't want to get in there in the pen with them, especially when the food was being poured in there. You could get hurt. And here's a Jewish boy that not only had that experience, but he also, having grown up under the law, they were unclean animals. It was the lowest job that he could take. But he was so hungry he took it. And he found himself so hungry that he would have eaten the food that the pigs were given, but no man would give him that. And one day he was thinking about how hungry he was. And the Bible says he came to himself. He came to. And he thought about how it used to be. He thought about that house, maybe on a hill, a great distance at the end of a road, that he had traveled at least once and closer in he had traveled many times. And he wondered what might be going on there tonight. And as his stomach growled, he thought, I bet they're eating supper right now. I wonder what they're having tonight. I wonder if they have any extra tonight. You know, Dad's not going to go, hung, go, go to bed hungry tonight like me. You know, my big brother, he's going to have everything he wants to eat tonight, and he's going to push the plate back, and there'll, there'll still be food on the table. And those hired servants eating over in the mess hall, when they've eaten all that they want, Maybe they've gotten seconds or even thirds and they finally can't eat another bite. There's bread enough and to spare. The servants are going to come in and clean off the table and there will be bread put away for tomorrow or thrown out because no one wanted it. And he said, and I'm perishing with hunger. And he came to himself and said, I know what I'll do. I'm going to arise and go to my father and I'm going to confess to him that I have sinned before heaven and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Dad, I don't want to live in the big house anymore. Dad, I don't want my old room back. Dad, I don't want to sit at your table. I just want to be one of the guys that works for you. Dad, I just want to be out in the mess hall. And I, I just want to go out in the fields and I'll work. Just let me do that. And he put one foot in front of the other and he began to walk. And as he went along, he rehearsed what he was going to say, his speech. And he must have wondered, what's my reception going to be? When I get there, 
Is dad going to refuse to come to the door? That would have been the normal Jewish father's reaction in that situation. A son that had treated his father this way. A man, any Jew who had lost all of his money to Gentiles would be marked and isolated and not allowed to be a part of the Jewish community? Is dad going to bolt the door and say, you've made your bed, go lie in it? Is, is dad going to send a servant down and meet me down at the end of the road at the edge of the property and he's going to say, your dad says you're not welcome here. Will I not even get to see his face? And as he continues to walk, and he gets to where that last curve is before the road that leads up to the house. His heart is in his throat, his stomach is in a knot, and he thinks, here we go. And then we switch scenes from the dirt, from the road leading to the house. I would say maybe on the porch of the house. And there is the old father, a little grayer than he was when the son left, maybe a little more stooped, maybe the lines etched in his face a lot deeper than before. Maybe there's a new knowing look in his eyes. And that brings us to Luke chapter 15 and verse 20. If you have that picture in your mind now, I want to talk to you a few minutes about God. About the kind of God that sits on His throne tonight and peers over the balcony of heaven into this very assembly. And tonight, the heart of God is in His throat as He thinks about one or some in this room tonight who He desperately wants to come down that road that that this young man came in this story. He's waiting even now, you might say with bated breath, for the invitation to be offered to see who will receive it. And not come to the preacher, not come to the church, but come home to God. And I want to read to you tonight what the Bible is teaching us about the God who sits in heaven even at this moment. And He arose and came to His Father, verse 20, But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. There are three things about God. I hope you'll remember when this lesson is over tonight. Number one, the God who runs. The eagerness of God to receive a sinner. Because the next part of this verse says that he had compassion and ran. I'm a visual person. I don't know if you are. But when I read this, I see it in my mind. I see that scene shifting from the roadside where the sun is maybe wringing his hands a bit, sweaty palms, and he's maybe weeping as he thinks about what may happen. But he's come this far. He's going to go the rest of the way. And then up on that porch somewhere on the farm, those old eyes are doing what they've done now a thousand times, a thousand times. He glances down the road and he, he stops. 
And he looks and he blinks. And he says, nah, just my old eyes, I'm sure, playing a trick on me. It, it, it looks like a dot on the horizon, but it probably isn't. But he, did, but he stops what he's doing and he watches it. And then in a moment he's convinced, yes, there is someone on the road, but it's probably the peddler. He's probably bringing his wares up here to see what we have a need of or what we might trade with him for. As he comes around fairly often, he watches and before long he shakes his head. says, no, it can't be the peddler. He, he's, he doesn't have a cart. It's a, it's a man walking. And then he watches as he gets a little closer and there's something familiar about that form. I'm not sure if it's the gait or the mannerisms or the set of the shoulders. There's just something that... But no, it, could, it couldn't be. I'm not going to get my hopes up again. But he watches. And he gets a little closer. And a smile breaks out on his face. And tears well up in his eyes. And then he does something that he's not done in years. He reaches down and takes the edge of his robe and he pulls it up to his knees. And these old bones begin to move. He, he jumps down from the porch, as it were, across the yard, into the road, and he begins to run down that dirt road. I see the servants over in the field as they glance up and then lean on their hoe handles to watch something they've never seen before. And maybe the kitchen help looks out the window and then rushes to the porch to see what the matter is. Maybe a man with a hay bale in the barn gets it about halfway up and then he sees and he just drops it and walks out of the barn and they all look to see what the master's running from, but there's nothing behind him. And then they all look ahead to the point where he's running to. Where's he going? And then they see the figure too. Isn't it interesting that the elder brother didn't see his brother first? None of the servants on the farm saw the silhouette. The father saw him. Maybe the oldest eyes, maybe the dimmest of all, but they were acutely focused with love and longing. And that father began to run. And he did not stop until he got to that boy. And even then he didn't stop as he took him into an embrace. And he kissed him. The verb tense here is he kissed him again and again and again. And then I see him step back from him and say, Son, let me take a look at you. He says, Oh, son, you have lost weight. Oh, son, what are you wearing? Where, where have you been? Where are your shoes, boy? Where's, where's the ring I gave you? By this time, the servants have caught up, some of them. And he begins to mark orders to one and then to another. Get him a robe. Get him some shoes. Put a ring on his finger. Somebody kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a celebration tonight because my son that I thought was dead, he's alive. 
And he's lost, but he's found. His father saw him and had compassion on him and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to his father, now he's practiced this, he's got it down, he knows what he wants to say. And he says, Father, I have sinned in, uh, against heaven and in thy sight, and no more worthy to be called thy son. But it's at this point that the father stops him, interrupts him. But the father said to the servant, he didn't get to say the part about make me a hired servant. His father said, somebody go get busy, we're going to take care of this matter now. Now I want to step back from this and talk about the application of the story. We understand what Jesus said, but what does it mean? It means that there is a God in heaven tonight who has such a strong love for sinners that He is even now hoping that He may be able to welcome one home tonight. You know, God has never run from an enemy. God has never run from a problem. God has never had to avoid a person. The only time the God of heaven ever gets in a hurry is when a prodigal's on the way back. I don't know how far it is from where God is tonight to this place. We think in terms, linear terms. But if I may speak metaphorically, did you know that God will step off of His throne tonight and if you respond to His invitation, do they go to the front in this configuration? Or they come? Where does a person respond? Right here? Okay. If you respond tonight and you come to this pew or to this pew, did you know that God will rush from heaven and meet you right there? That's how much God loves you. That's how much God wants you back if you're not in His family tonight. God is rich in mercy. God is full of grace. Ephesians 2, verse 4, verse 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, not out of yourselves. You see, this young man came back. He did not want justice because justice would have left him out there in the pig pen because he had made his decisions and those were the consequences. And justice would have said, that's what you get when you make the choices that you've made. But he came back hoping for mercy. He said, I just want to be a hired servant. But what he got was grace because God the Father said, I'm going to restore you back where you were. Micah 7.18 says that God delights in mercy. What, what do we delight in? Maybe you delight in your football team winning on Saturday or on a Friday night. Maybe you delight in finding a good bargain at the mall or some other store. Maybe it just warms your heart to be able to go home and say, I got this, you know, for 75% off. Maybe, it maybe you delight in keeping your grandchildren when you have an opportunity in the afternoon to spend with them. Maybe you delight in making a, a good business deal and seeing the bank account rise again. But God delights in none of those things. What God delights in is mercy. 
when He can show mercy to one who needs it and restore one who needs to be restored. That's the first point that we learn. A God who runs the eagerness of God to receive the sinner. Number two, we see in this text also the God who restores a seat at the table. When the prodigal son came back, it's not just window dressing in the story for him to be given a robe and a ring and shoes. No, those each had a a symbolic application in Jewish society. He said first, well let's just read it together, bring forth the best robe. I suppose in this circumstance, any clothes would have, done, would have been fine. I mean, he would have been satisfied with that box of clothes we've got on the back porch that we're going to discard. Just get him something out of there. It's better than what he has. Or, you know, just go back into the back of his closet and some of those clothes that he didn't take with him, he can have those now. Or... He didn't even say, go into my closet and get some of my clothes out and he can wear those. He said, bring the best robe. What does that mean? This was a robe that was thick and embroidered and that likely had never been worn before. It was put in a special place in the farm or the house in case a prince or a priest or a prophet or someone of great standing came this way and asked to stay overnight. Now we, we would not, in our culture we don't have this because we have hotels. They had more or less, they had hotels, but they were often associated more with being a brothel than being a hotel. So it's more, far more common to stay with someone rather than stay in a public place. And so if that happened and this guest of honor was going to sit at their table, he was going to wear the best robe. The father likely had never worn this. Maybe nobody ever had, but tonight the prodigal son would wear it. And what does that represent? But it represents the fact that God not only receives a sinner back as if on probation, a second-class citizenship, you know, if you hold out for a while, maybe we will... Uh, allow you to you know, lead a song on singing night or, or we might use you on the Lord's table you know, if you show you're going to stick with it for six or eight months. And... No. There's no lingering smell of the pig pit on, a, on the forgiven son. Put on him the best robe. And then he says, also... Put a ring on his hand. You may be wearing, most of us are wearing rings tonight, at least a wedding band. They have significance, but not exactly the same significance that a Jewish ring would have, especially the kind he's talking about here, a signet ring. You remember when Joseph was elevated back in Genesis 41? He was given a ring. That ring represented the fact that he represented the king and he was to be obeyed in place of the king if the king wasn't there. And that also was like our modern credit cards. I mean, this meant that this son could go to the marketplace and he could buy the provisions or the seed or whatever the family needed and he could press his signet ring into the wax 
And that would be the same as his signature. That showed that he had the, the family's authority to make these decisions and these purchases. So what this represented was he was now going to be restored to be a son in the father's family. No, none of this be a servant out in the servants' quarters. He's going to have his own room back in the big house. He's going to sit at the family table and he's going to be a participant in our family's activities. He, he's not going to be back just as a servant. He's going to be adopted or restored back to his previous state as a son. And you know, when you and, when you and I came back to God, if you've come back to God. God did not just say, I'll let you be my servant, although we are His servants. He said, I'll let you be my son. I want you to be my daughter. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. We were born into the family of God. John 3, 1 through 5. And as the children of God, we wear the name of God. Uh, you may have a family name that goes back historically. And it may be a name of some worth in this community. But it does not compare to the name that you were given at the hour of your baptism when God adopted you into His family and said, Now, this is a Christian. This is one of mine in my family. Not only do you receive a name, but you receive brothers and sisters. We have another family, and a large family. Many of you have traveled widely, some on mission trips. Maybe you've been on another, on another continent, another side of the world, and you gathered in a place that maybe didn't look a lot like this, with faces that maybe didn't look a lot like those around us tonight, but then you began to worship and to sing the songs of Zion, and to open the book of God, and to commune around the Lord's table. And you were, you were amongst family, among people that you had never even known. And how blessed we have been through the years. I've, I've known, uh, we've had this happen twice at Jacksonville, because Jacksonville State University is there, we get to work with students, and it's a great blessing and privilege we baptize a number of students. And twice during the years, we've baptized those who were kicked out of their families when they obeyed the gospel. One young lady, her parents objected to it strongly. And they said, well, if you, if you become a member of the Church of Christ, then we're not going to pay for you to go to Jacksonville State or any school. She did, and they did. They didn't. The elders bought her a vehicle and she, had a, she got a job. She moved in with an elder in another congregation. Um, she finished school. Another young man, same thing happened. His parents put his clothes in his luggage and put it on the front porch and said, don't come back in the house. But did you know, they lost one family, but they gained a larger family. I was blessed, the, the second young man. I lost touch with him after he graduated. I was preaching in a gospel meeting. And I got there and got to the first service. And guess who got up to lead the singing in that gospel meeting? But that young man who had been faithful to God for that was about 10 or 12 years later. And he had a family in that place. 
And then he had, he had his own family by this time and, and children. What a blessing. That's what the ring represents. But it also says he was given shoes. And I, I suppose that when his dad saw him returning and he looked down at his feet, and maybe they were swollen from walking over all that long distance without any protection. Maybe they were bleeding from stepping on sharp rocks or thorns as he had made his way home. And, but there was more to it than just the protection of his feet. In that culture, slaves did not wear shoes normally unless the work that they were doing required protection for their feet. And so you could, under usual circumstances, tell the free people from the slave people by whether or not they had any shoes on. And this young man had gone to the far country of sin and he had become enslaved to sin. He had become... John 8.34 He that serves sin is the servant of sin. And so he had learned that sin is enslaving. But now he's come home and his father says, put shoes on his feet because he's a free man. He no longer is enslaved. John 8.32 Just before that, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We've been set free from our guilt. We've been set free from the consequences, at least many of the consequences of our sin. Certainly, God will help us even to overcome the addictions that sin may have lingering, sin's lingering effects in our hearts or in our physical bodies. But let's go back into this text and see again. Not only is, does this teach us about a God who runs and a God who restores, but it also teaches us about a God who provides because it says in the next verse, And bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. A fatted calf was, and it would be an extravagance even in our culture. But in that culture, where the average person did not eat meat except maybe once a week, and then it was most likely fish, and very seldom would the average family eat red meat, now this family represents the upper crust of society. And so perhaps they had meat more often, but killing the fatted calf, that, that might not have happened in a long time. For sometimes they would grow the fatted calf in case the prophet or the priest or the prince came along to wear the, the robe and sit at the table. That's when they would kill the fatted calf, but if none came along, then they would sell the fatted calf and, and bring up another one and have it ready. And so they might not have killed a fatted calf in a long time, but tonight they would. And so he has, he's saying, we're going to butcher him, we're going to cook him, we're going to feast tonight. What does that represent? It represents the provisions that God gives for us in Christ. Everything that sin takes away from us, God says, let me provide something better for you, but my God shall supply all your need through His riches in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. Every good gift and perfect gift cometh down from above from the Father of lights, with whom is no shadow, variation neither shadow of turning. For God so loved that He gave, John 3.16. And when you think about um, your situation as a Christian tonight, you may not have the nicest or the largest house on your street. It may be that your car is a couple of years older than your neighbor's car. It may be that the labels on your clothes are not the finest in the land. It may be that you're waiting for next week's paycheck to be able to pay this week's bills. 
and the bank account might not match what some others around town would be able to say theirs has in it. But would you tonight trade what you have in Christ to be any of those things when you can bow your head and ask anything you want, any time, day or night, and the God who sits on the throne of the universe will, as it were, lean over, tilt His ear to listen to your petition? And then if it's within His will, we'll say, sure, let me give that to you. Would you trade tonight for the riches of the land, having an opportunity to know from whence you've come, made in the image of God, bought with the blood of Christ, and to know your purpose for being here, to bring glory to God, so that every day, even before your feet hit the floor when getting out of bed in the morning, it's not, what am I going to do today? It's not, uh, I wonder what my purpose on life is. It's not, what escapism can I get into today to forget about my problems? It's, I've got something to do with, for God and for the church and the kingdom of heaven today. I've got someone that I'm wanting to talk to or influence. I've got family to teach and to train. I've, I've got a reason to live. And what about when you go to bed tonight and you think about well, what, what does the future hold? You, you wonder, what if, I, what if I never wake up? And then a smile crosses your face and you think, well, that'd be a good thing. I'll, it wouldn't be good to leave our families and some things that we still, as Paul said, it's more needful to stay, Philippians 1. But to depart to be with Christ is far better. I remember reading about Marshall Keeble. Brother Keeble, uh, I, I never got to meet him. I heard the sermons that you may have heard, the recordings. I've read his book and a book about him by Brother Cato. I don't remember where I first read this or heard this, but Brother Keeble's first wife passed away and he married again, a younger woman. And Brother Keeble was old. At least part of the time, they slept in different bedrooms. And one night she heard him, she thought, and she got up, she was afraid maybe he had fallen or he needed something. And so she walked down the hall and she stood beside the door. She didn't want to open it and wake him up if she had been wrong. So she listened for a minute and then she heard him laughing. And she said, Marshall, are you okay in there? And he said, oh, yes. I was just thinking about heaven. When is the last time we even smiled in thinking about heaven? much less laughed out loud. But you know, that's what God grants us as His children tonight. Knowing from where we've come, knowing why we're here, knowing what our future holds and who holds the future. You see, there was the, the God who runs, there's the God who restores, and then there's the God who provides. But let's go further into this story and just keep reading. I want to I see a, so additional lessons. Now we're in verse 24. But this my son was dead. He's alive again. He's lost. He's found. He began to be merry. And you know, from a literary standpoint, it would be better if that was the end of the chapter. 
In fact, a lot of people who've read this have thought, why does the story go on? I mean, here you have a Hollywood ending. The boy's back home, everybody's happy, cut to the credits and let it roll. And that's the end of the story. But the, but the Holy Spirit did not write the Bible for our entertainment. He wrote it for our benefit. And in this chapter, we, we sometimes call it the, chap, the lost chapter of the Bible, not because it was lost and found and put in the Bible, but because of the content of the chapter. It begins with... Uh, the record of the publican, all the publicans coming to hear Jesus gladly, and the Pharisees are murmuring about that. You know, they missed out on the kingdom of heaven. Not because they weren't invited, not because the very Son of God came down from heaven and urged them to come into the kingdom of heaven. But you know what? They looked in the door of the kingdom of heaven and they saw undesirable people in there, and they said, No, no, thank you. I don't, if they're in there, I don't want to be in there. That's what you have in Luke chapter 15. Because God loved everybody and let the publicans and the sinners in, the Pharisees who thought they were better than them would not go into the kingdom. And the story ends with the elder brother outside and the prodigal son in, inside at the party. But let's get to that point. He gives these three parables, three stories, four parables. And there's the parable of the lost sheep. And there's a shepherd that has a hundred sheep. One's lost. He leaves the ninety and ninety goes and searches and finds it. Puts it on his shoulders and rejoices and goes home and calls his friends and says, Rejoice with me, for I found the one that was lost. And then there was a woman who had ten coins and she lost one. Now that probably would not get us so exercised, you know, so I lost a quarter. But in that culture, money was not to be had. And especially if this is representing her dowry, which many commentators believe this money had been handed down from one generation to another. This money was for a specific purpose. It had sentimental value as well as monetary value. And so she lost one of the coins. Somehow she had been careless and it slipped from her fingers and maybe it was down in the furniture or maybe it was under the rug or it had gone into the crack in the floor, but she couldn't find it. And she was very upset as she swept the house. She cleaned it. She finally found it. Then she said to her friends, Rejoice with me. I found the coin. Those two parables represent the lower, the lower parts of society. I mean, a woman who had ten coins lost one. Not very wealthy. A man who had a hundred sheep. A little more wealthy, but he could not bear the loss of even one. And then the, uh, the last story is from the rich part of town. The farmer that has the hired servants, as we've been talking about. And this is the lost sons. There's two of them. The first one we know about. And the Pharisees would have shaken their head in agreement with these first two stories, uh, first three stories. The, the shepherd, well, um, yeah, that's just like those publicans. They've all wandered away. And then the woman who lost the coin, that's like those sinners to get lost. And then the prodigal son, oh, that's, that's right. He went to the far country and... and who knows what he did over there. And, but then this last one, this elder brother. Elder son was in the field. There are three things about him. He was absent, he was angry, and he was admonished. Why was he absent? Have you ever wondered why nobody told him? 
I mean, it would be hours later by now. They've got to kill the fatty calf, butcher it, cook it. They've got to send the invitations out for others, hire the musicians. Everybody's now inside at the party. How much time has passed since the father hugged the son out on the road? A long time. But no, nobody went out there to tell him. None of the servants, the dad, the father didn't go out there. Your brother's home. I wonder why. You reckon he was the kind of person that you didn't want to tell, tell because... He'd blow up at you like Naboth, First Samuel 25. Such a son of Belial, you can't talk to him. And he was angry and he would not go in. So his father left the celebration, one of the happiest days of his life, and he closes the door and he goes outside and he talks to him and begs him to come in. It says in verse 29 that he answering said to his father, if I'd ask you tonight what the greatest danger we face is, I wonder if you might have responded the moral decline of our nation or the financial uncertainty or the threat of our government um, taking away our rights or maybe physical persecution, but it wouldn't be any of those things. You'd be wrong if you said any of those things. You know what the greatest danger facing you and me is tonight? It's a four-letter word. S-E-L-F. We are our own worst enemy. Because self-righteousness, self-love, self-admiration, self-pity, those are the things that will keep us out of heaven. Now the economy may tank and we may have to live on fewer dollars. We, we might have more temptations thrown in our path because of our culture. We might have the government restricting, but we're still going to worship and serve God regardless of what the government said. We might even be in prison for it, but we're not going. that can't take us from God's hand. But self can. This elder brother had that problem. He was self-righteous. All these years I serve you and I never have transgressed your law at any time. He was self-centered. I serve thee. I have not transgressed. Thou never gavest me a kid to make merry with my friends. And then he was self-deluded. For he said, I serve thee. Did he really? Who was he serving? He wasn't serving his father at this moment. His father asked him to come in, but he said no. He wasn't rejoicing with the happiness of his father. He was angry about it. I wonder tonight, as we extend the Lord's invitation, if self is in the way of anyone in here tonight. Am I saying I know I should respond, but what would people say? I know I should be baptized, but what will people think? I know I should make my life right with God, but I don't think I want to do that tonight. Why not tonight? As God waits from His vantage point to be the God who runs, the God who restores, the God who provides, will He see a younger brother in me, though I've made my mistakes, I own them and I'm ready to come home? Or will he see an elder brother 
who sits alone and outside and not at the party. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. May I ask you tonight, are you a believer that Jesus is the Son of God? If you answer that question, yes, may I ask you, have you been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Immersed in water? If the two answers to those two questions is yes, then you are in a saved condition tonight, provided you've maintained your your faith, you've continued to, to walk with Jesus. Maybe tonight, though, there is one who is a believer but has not yet been baptized. I wonder if this meeting is going to end with a person who was lost when when we started on Sunday and will still be lost when we end on Wednesday. I don't know that. I have no idea. But I would be very surprised in an audience of this size that no one needs to obey the Gospel. I might also ask, is there anyone in here tonight who needs to be restored? I'd be very surprised if it's many people, but I'd also be surprised if it's no one. You know, I've walked down the aisles or I requested the prayers at Jacksonville a number of times. And I remember how fast my heart was beating, the sweat, and the thoughts that went through my mind, well, what are people going to say? The preacher's asking for forgiveness. But then I thought, well, what will God say if I don't? What's God going to say tonight? Will you come while we stand and as we sing?